Google has published papers on distributed systems such as Bigtable, Chubby, and the Google File System. During this episode, we focus on a product that takes inspiration from Google's Spanner project, a database that is built on a distributed, monolithic, sorted map. CockroachDB is a scalable, survivable, consistent SQL database. Today's guest, Ben Darnell, is the CTO of Cockroach Labs, and he joins us to discuss SQL and NoSQL and the trade-offs that different types of distributed databases can make. Ben explores these trade-offs between database types and explains how CockroachDB provides many of the best features of both a SQL and a NoSQL distributed database, while also providing the survivability of a cockroach. CockroachDB is a scalable, survivable, strongly consistent SQL database. Ben Darnell is the CTO of Cockroach Labs, which makes CockroachDB. Ben, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks, Jeff, for, for having me. Today's database systems force you to choose between consistency and scalability. Explain why this has historically been a trade-off. So in... Uh in a in a traditional relational database, you have a uh, you have a single database server which can serve um, strongly consistent transactions because everything is uh, everything is stored in one place. Now, what we saw with the uh, NoSQL movement uh, starting in the uh, in the mid two thousands was that people would move to a database uh, system uh, like uh, Bigtable or its uh, descendants HBase and Cassandra or a document oriented database like uh, like MongoDB, and this would give you the capabilities to to spread your data out across a lot of different uh, different machines and let you add lots of capacity cheaply. But it had the downside that uh, that these nodes weren't uh, weren't tightly coordinated with each other. And so you would uh, you, you would not have uh, strong consistency across uh, across the different nodes, and so for example, it was possible to for a record to be updated on one node without a corresponding record on another node to be uh, to be kept up to date. And so in uh, CockroachDB, we are building a system that is uh, strongly uh, consistent and transactional at every level, and so that um, so that the data the changes that you make across all the nodes, um, no matter how no matter how the data is laid out across the different physical machines, um, everything is transactional and atomic, and so the uh, all the records either update or or don't um, depending on the state of the transaction. I'd love to dive a little bit more deeply into this SQL versus NoSQL set of trade-offs before we talk more about CockroachDB. So uh, relational SQL databases have some great features like declarative SQL, they have good support for indexing and transactions, but they have poor horizontal scalability. Why is it difficult to scale a relational database? So it's... It's difficult to scale because the relational model is so flexible. You can say in a uh, in a SQL statement, um, you, you know, essentially arbitrary transformations on arbitrary amounts of data, and you can see this um, even in a in a single node. There's uh, huge differences in performance from one uh, SQL query to another, depending on exactly how the query is written and how the um, how the data is laid out on disk and how it's how it's indexed, and so. Uh, d- distributing a relational database is uh, is essentially just a, a much harder version of this already hard problem. 
and so that's where uh, that's where NoSQL comes in. Um, NoSQL uh, databases specifically give up a lot of that flexibility and power, and then they, they've reduced the problem to a simpler state that is then easier to solve in a distributed fashion. So, okay, NoSQL databases, in contrast to SQL, are scalable to large clusters, but there are limitations. You don't have strong transactional semantics, so it's easy for your data to become inconsistent among shards and replicas. Explain this in more detail. Why can NoSQL databases lead to inconsistency? So, um, so, so first of all, um, NoSQL databases um, are a a broad category and so there there's uh, so, so what i'm saying may not apply equally to all of them but in general um what most NoSQL databases do is they place uh they either don't support transactions at all or they only support transactions in uh in a limited fashion for example they only only support uh transactions within a single uh a single row in HBase or Cassandra, or a single entity group in some systems. That there's usually some uh, some unit of distribution that is also the largest scope you can have for a transaction. And so anything that you want to do across and, and anything that you want to do across transaction across uh, whatever these units is across entity groups or whatever they uh, whatever they may be in any given system. Um, this has to be a that this is a non-transactional operation, and so if the uh, if the database or the client uh, fails at an inopportune time, then um, then the transaction may have or the, the operation may have been uh, completed on one uh, on one node and not on another. And so, for example, if you were if you were building a uh, a bank on top of a database, um, when you want to uh, subtract uh, subtract fifty dollars from account A and add fifty dollars to account B, you have to make sure that both of those things happen or neither of them do. You don't don't want to either destroy the money or create it out of thin air, and so in uh, and so that's a, that's a big problem um, for doing uh, for doing certain kinds of things in a uh, in a distributed database because the, the the data that you want may not be arranged in such a way that the uh, that the transactions you want to do are possible. Most NoSQL systems can only claim eventual consistency. What are the kinds, and, and for listeners who don't really understand the concept of eventual consistency, we've done many shows about consistency and distributed systems, and there are plenty of episodes you can go back to to learn about this, such as a recent episode about REOC. Um, but assuming our listeners know what eventual consistency is, what are the kinds of applications where eventual consistency is not good enough? Um. Yeah. So uh, first of all, um, I want to clarify that uh, eventual consistency is really separate from the question of SQL versus NoSQL, um, because uh, because uh, SQL databases in uh, in the typical kinds of replicated configurations that you see when you replicate a MySQL or Postgres database, that these uh, these replicated systems are also eventually consistent um, because the uh, because the replication is done asynchronously and so the uh, the update will be made on the master before it is uh, asynchronously replicated to the uh, to the secondary and so um, the, the the eventual consistency is a is a separate a separate question from whether the uh, the database itself is transactional in a in a single copy and so um so, so back to the question of where uh, when is eventual consistency um, uh, good enough and when is it not? 
Well, the thing is that uh, eventual consistency is uh, is really kind of a a marketing uh, a marketing term that was come up with <laughs> by some of these uh, so some of these NoSQL systems. It's not it's not really um, consistent in any uh, in any strong sense of the uh, of the term, and so you have the. Uh, so, so, so in, the more more accurate term is usually inconsistent, or um, yeah. Well, you, it's not it's not usually inconsistent. So, so well, <laughs> actually, one way to look at it is that an eventually consistent system is is not necessarily durable. So, if you're familiar with the the acronym ACID, um, describing the uh, the properties that you want in a uh, in a transactional database, um, that's atomicity, consistency, isolation, and durability. Um, what an event, uh, so the last point of that is, uh, is durability, meaning that once you've, uh, once you've committed a transaction, it essentially stays committed. And that's actually the part that is, that is lost with an eventually consistent system, um, because the, the, the data could be, um, could be lost before it is, uh, before it's replicated. Okay. Well, now that we've had a broad overview of SQL and NoSQL and some consistency discussion, let's get into CockroachDB. What is CockroachDB? So CockroachDB, um, as you said at the, uh, at the start of the show, it's a uh, distributed uh, transactional SQL, uh, SQL database. And so we can, uh, we, we can dig into each of, those, uh, each of those terms one at a time. So it's distributed, uh, meaning it runs across, uh, across a large number of machines, uh, potentially spanning, uh, spanning data centers and, uh, and large areas. Um, it's uh, transactional, meaning that uh, every, uh, everything you do is, uh, is run as a, as a part of a transaction and, uh, and uh, is, is consistent and, and atomic. Um, and that the, these uh, these transactions are also fully distributed, so you can have arbitrary transactions over any uh, any subsets of your uh, of your data. There's no uh, no restrictions on what can be a part of a transaction. Um, it's also it's also a SQL database or a relational database. This is the interface that you use to interact with it. Um, this is. Uh, th- th- this is uh, a a work in progress, but we're aiming to be. Uh, compatible enough with uh, with standard SQL to uh, that you can use uh, off the shelf ORM uh, ORM products like uh, like Django or Rails or Hibernate or things like that. And uh, th- these uh, we're, we're not we're not to the point yet where you can just use these things um, off the shelf and have them work. But we're uh, we're aiming for that as a as a compatibility goal. So you can so, so you. You're you're not having to write uh, write raw SQL queries or doing do custom work for CockroachDB. Um, it's something that uh, that you can use uh, off the shelf with the same tools that you would use if you were using MySQL or Postgres or anything else. Before we get into the implementation details of CockroachDB, are there any other design goals, some high level goals that CockroachDB is trying to achieve? Um, yeah, there, there are uh, there, there are several. Um, one of the uh, well, one of the other things that we are uh, making a big uh, a big effort in that uh, I haven't touched on yet is to, we're trying to be very easy to deploy and operate. Um, we uh, th- this is uh, something that uh, is kind of a necessity when you're running at uh, at very large scale on lots of machines, um, and it's uh, it's specifically an area that we think is is lacking in a lot of the uh, a lot of the products in this space right now. And so Cockroach is, uh, is shipped as a single binary um, with no dependencies. You run this binary on, uh, on any number of machines. Um, you give each node the addresses of at least one other node in the cluster. 
or you point it at a load balancer that knows how to find them. And then they, uh, they talk to each other and sort of self-organize from there. There's no need to statically choose a, uh, a primary and a secondary or, uh, you, you know, you don't need a separate zookeeper cluster or anything like that. Everything is, uh, is self-contained. And once you, uh, once you run this, uh, this binary on all of your, uh, on all of your servers, um, the, the cockroach system basically takes it, uh, takes it from there and is responsible for, um, migrating data between, uh, between nodes as necessary, making sure that everything is, uh, fully replicated up to your target configurations and so on. So now let's start talking about the architecture and the implementation of CockroachDB. CockroachDB is architected as a sorted monolithic map. Explain what this means. Yep. All right. So, um, uh, to uh, explain this, um, th- this is actually a uh, an architecture that's not uh, not that unusual in uh, in the database world. Um, in uh, a lot of other databases, use a, a similar kind of strategy in a uh, in a non distributed way. So what this uh, what this monolithic map means is that all of your uh, all of the data in your table uh, in your tables is ultimately encoded into an ordered key value store. And so, for each uh, for each record in uh, in a SQL table, you, we construct a uh, a key which is an encoded representation of your primary key, uh, prefixed with the table ID and uh, and that sort of thing. And so, we have a uh, what is conceptually one giant key value store of all of the uh, all of the data in uh, in your in your data. And then indexes are other rows in this key value store that are uh, that are represented in a different way. So does each each key corresponds to a to a row in a MySQL database, sort of, or or in a SQL database? Um, each uh, each key in this key value store actually currently corresponds to a to a column value in a row. Okay. And so the, oh, the end okay. of each uh, at the end of each key, there's a, there's a column ID. Um, this is actually something that uh, that we may revisit in the future to be able to group multiple columns into one uh, into one key uh, key value to uh, make things uh, make things more efficient at the at the low level encoding. But currently, currently it's stored as a sparse uh, a sparse matrix, um, essentially drawing inspiration from uh, from Bigtable and uh, and Spanner in terms of this uh, this design. But so we have. We have the one giant uh, giant sorted map containing all of the data in the database, and then um, we take uh, we take continuous uh, sub sub regions of that map, um, and we uh, we call those ranges, and then those are the uh, the physical units of storage and distribution in the uh, in the system, and so you know if you if you look at it alphabetically. Um, to, to simplify things a little bit, then you know we may have a range for all of the uh, all of the records starting with A through C, and then a second range for uh, all the records starting with uh, with D through F, and so on. And so we we split it up into uh, into uh, contiguous ranges, and then those ranges are the uh, are the unit of distribution. And so each of those ranges is stored on um, at least three different nodes in the system, and the three replicas of a range are the ones that coordinate to, uh, to, to ensure that all of the changes to that range are done atomically. Got it. So the, the, just to, to make sure I've got this correct. So each, uh, the, the, the map that is distributed across, uh, across, you know, at least three, three replicas, uh, defines a, 
key space, and each key corresponds to a column value of a specific row uh, in a uh, what what at a higher level of abstraction is a SQL database. Right. And so, so if you wanted to have a SQL representation of this, you would have uh, you know you would conceptually have you know a, a, a SQL table, and each each value within a given row uh, has a mapping associated to it. And in order to find the value of that mapping, you would go into the distributed map of CockroachDB. Uh, you, would, you would look through this, this distributed range uh, distributed range of key, key spaces, and that key, and the key that you're looking up would correspond to the the value that you want to load into your SQL representation. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Okay, very interesting. So the highest level of abstraction is SQL. CockroachDB uses a grammar that is similar to Postgres, and the layer below that is this distributed sorted key value store. How exactly does the SQL layer interface with the key value store layer? Um, so the... Uh the key value store exposes uh, an RPC interface um, that gives you operations like uh, like get, put, uh, increment, delete, uh, conditional put, um, you know, a handful of different uh, of different primitives, and um, you submit these as uh, as batches into the KV layer. The KV layer can actually um, per- uh, then goes to partition these at uh, at range boundaries, and so it figures out which. Uh, which operations can be sent together to because they fall on the same range and which need to be uh, separated out. And so we have a, uh, we have uh, what one, so, so there's kind of a first layer of the system, which is logically speaking, something like a client library that understands the key structure and how to split up the requests and farm them out to the, uh, to the different nodes. And then it sends the, uh, sends the nodes out to the, uh, or sends the requests out to the nodes that hold the data. And then those nodes, um, will send uh, send the requests uh, down through raft um, to ultimately be applied um, via consensus across all the, all the replicas of the range data is stored across distributed nodes in this distributed uh, this system of ranges uh, so explain explain what a node is and what a store is to disambiguate this and describe how stores are nested within nodes Right. So uh, nodes and stores, um, a, a node is essentially a cockroach server process running on a machine. So you will gen- so, so nodes and machines are generally synonymous. You can run multiple nodes on one machine um, for testing purposes, but it wouldn't make sense to do that for, uh, for production use. So a node and a machine are more or less synonymous. And then in practice, um, you would have one store for each disk on the machine. So... So, so in in a you know in the simple case you have uh, you have a bunch of nodes each with one store. If you have multiple uh, multiple disks per machine that are not organized into a RAID array or something like that, then you would uh, then you would have multiple uh, multiple stores on those nodes. As a CockroachDB deployment scales, ranges get broken up across nodes. Explain how this range distribution works and how ranges get reconfigured as a deployment grows right so as uh so so initially um the uh 
when the, when a cluster is first deployed, um, it only contains one range. Um, and so as, uh, as data is written into the database and that range grows, it eventually hits, uh, hits the maximum size, the maximum target size for a range, um, which is currently 64 megabytes. Um, and then that, that, that's going to trigger a split operation. And so in a split, we, uh, we look at the, uh, look at the data in, in the range. We pick, uh, pick someplace near the midpoint of that range. And then we, uh, and then we do a split and create a second range off, uh, you, uh, so, so the, the, the range itself, the, the original range shrinks to cover, uh, its left half. And then we create a new range to hold the data from the right half. And so then, um, after this split has occurred, then we now have two ranges that can be moved around and rebalanced independently. And so the, uh, the nodes all, uh, all talk to each other uh, using a gossip protocol to essentially broadcast information about how, uh, how heavily loaded they are, how much free space they have, and so on. And so when a node notices that, uh, oh, I've got, uh, that, you know, my, my disk usage is, uh, is, you know, 10% above the median, then I'm going to try and shed some of this load. I'm going to find a node whose disk usage is below the median and, uh, and uh, ship them some of my data. You mentioned the gossip protocol, and you've also mentioned uh, Raft earlier in this conversation, which is another distributed systems protocol. Uh, and maybe I'm not uh, great at understanding how these two types of protocols contrast, but I think that something like Raft or Paxos is uh, a little stronger in terms of how frequently it tries to uh, to synchronize a system versus a gossip protocol, which is a little more opportunistic. Is that accurate? Uh, yeah, that, that's accurate. So um, Raft, um, Raft is a distributed consensus algorithm, uh, just like Paxos, and it is a uh, it provides very strong uh, consistency and ordering guarantees. And so, whenever you make a change to your data, this is actually done through a uh, through Raft, um, and Raft essentially runs um, what's like a, a, a mini election. Um, for each uh, for each change that comes through, and so uh, so, so uh, as I've said before, each uh, each range is replicated on three different nodes, and one of those nodes will be elected leader at any given time, and so any rights to uh, any rights to that range go to the leader, and then the leader is going to forward that uh, that request to uh, to each of the followers, and it's not going to consider it's not going to consider the the uh, the operation complete until it has heard back from a majority a majority of the followers or a majority of the of the of the uh, replica set and so in, in most cases that's 2 out of 3 or could be 3 out of 5 um, depending on how your uh, how your replication is configured yeah so uh, these two different types of distributed systems protocols could you give some you know for for people who are really unfamiliar with distributed systems or they're trying to learn uh Give an idea of like when you would use these two types of protocols. Like, why would you use a Raft or Paxos protocol to synchronize stuff more aggressively versus an opportunistic gossip protocol? Right. So, uh, gossip um, gossip is uh, is very different from uh, from Raft. Um, gossip is a is a very cheap uh, broadcast protocol essentially, and so it's uh, it's a good way to get. Uh, to, to get data cheaply across uh, across the entire cluster, but it's uh, it provides no consistency guarantees at all, and so 
Um, in this case, the uh, you know th this is why we use gossip for things like uh, for things like the disk usage of a server because it doesn't really matter whether you're uh, basing your rebalancing decisions on the up to the minute disk usage of the server or whether that uh, lags behind by but uh, by some uh, some period of time, and so. Um, that basically gossip is, um, you know, just like gossip in the, in the real world, it's, uh, it's undirected and kind of not, not, not fully controlled. And so, you know, when you put something into gossip, it will eventually make its way across the entire cluster, but there's no, there's no strong guarantees of how long that will take. It's not, uh, directed to anywhere in particular, Whereas Raft is very, uh, very tightly controlled. It's uh, it produces a, an ordered sequence of operations and um, guarantees that uh, that that uh, sequence is uh, is complete and uh, and identical on every uh, on every replica. How similar is CockroachDB to the Spanner database technology designed by Google? Uh, so Spanner is uh, is definitely our biggest uh, biggest single inspiration. Um, it's kind of the uh, the existence proof that tells us that uh, you know something like this can be uh, can, can be built and uh, and work well at, at scale. Um, I think the uh, and and a lot of our high level design points are are similar. Um, they're both based on a monolithic sorted map, for example, um, and the the the. Uh, splitting up you know the spanner is also uh divides things into uh, what they call spans we call ranges and uh produce, and puts these into independent consensus uh consensus groups uh, the biggest difference um at least in terms of what is widely known and understood about spanner is that uh google actually uh went to great lengths to build atomic clocks for their uh for their data centers um to provide very accurate time signals for their uh, for their servers and that is something that uh, that we we won't have because cockroach is uh is designed to run on commodity hardware in uh in whatever data center you may have and so we can't rely on exotic uh timekeeping hardware and so that uh that that places um, certain uh, certain limitations on um, on the way that our uh, that that our transactions can can work. So our transaction model is slightly uh, slightly different from Spanner's. Um, Spanner's transactions, um, if Spanner, so, so um, if you're familiar with the, uh, the the concept of isolation levels in SQL, um, in in SQL, you can have transactions that run at different uh, at different isolation levels, like uh, read committed, repeatable read, serializable. Um, but that that's just uh, that's just th those are the ones that are typically offered in SQL databases. But that's um, if you look at the uh, the literature in, uh, in in distributed systems design, um, there are actually a bunch more different uh, different isolation levels that are possible. And so um, Spanner actually uh, provides a a very strong uh, guarantee called linearizable, which is um, str an even stronger guarantee than uh, than the serializable uh, transactions that is, that are the uh, the top level that most uh, most relational databases offer. Um, and uh, a lot of that comes from the fact that they have this uh, this atomic clock synchronization. Um, for us, we don't uh, we don't have that uh, that capability, and so um, our transactions actually are uh, serializable. Um, so. So slightly, uh, slightly weaker isolation than you would get with uh, with Spanner, but still, you know, matching the uh, matching the top tier isolation of uh, of other uh, other uh, relational databases. 
Got it. So uh, we will get into this and, uh, you know, I guess we might as well, a good place to start might be to touch more on this, uh, this idea of why Google needed to build atomic clocks or atomic clock technology in order to uh, have really accurate time stamping. And that definitely relates to this linearizability feature of Spanner. Um, And uh, even though CockroachDB doesn't implement linearizability. I think it's an interesting topic of conversation as to like why you why CockroachDB because it's running on commodity because it wants to run on commodity hardware hardware literally cannot guarantee linearizability. Um, so yeah, let's let's talk about that a bit. Uh, you know, um, I don't I don't know where the, the best place to start is, but maybe it's with this term external consistency. Um, I mean. How, how, what is this term external consistency? How does that relate to the term linearizability? How does that relate to serializability? Um, I'm not uh, I'm not sure of the exact uh, definition of uh, of external consistency, so I'm not sure that I can uh, answer that precisely. Um, but the oh, okay, maybe I maybe I read too much into the the spanner paper uh, <laughs> spanner papers vocabulary. Um, yeah, no, no, I'm ju- I'm just not. Th- th- this is. This is not my area of uh, of expertise in the system, so I'm not. Uh, These I'm consistency not the, uh, terms—they're all yeah. about marketing. <laughs> no, no, they—they they do make. Uh, I mean, they're, they're not just not just marketing. They do have very uh, very specific definitions, and so that's why I'm uh, I'm hesitant to, uh, to to go into um, the parts of the uh, parts of the vocabulary that I'm not uh, that, that I'm not uh, completely up to speed on. But uh, I can talk a little bit about the difference between um, serializable and linearizable transactions and how that uh, how that can come up in uh, in practice. And so, the, yes, please. Yeah. So first of all, um, the the uh, the fact that we don't have atomic clocks doesn't uh, d- doesn't mean that we can't offer linearizability. It means that uh, that doing so is much more expensive for us than for uh, for Spanner uh, because um, we. Uh, because with with Spanner and atomic clocks, they know that uh, all the clocks in the in the cluster are synchronized to within, uh, I believe, seven milliseconds of each other. And so it turns out that uh, that, that what, uh, an easy way to provide linearizability is to just insert a seven millisecond sleep in your uh, in your uh, transaction at certain places, and then that is enough to uh, to guarantee linearizability. Now, for us, without without atomic clocks, we have to rely on NTP instead for clock synchronization, and that gives you much looser guarantees. You know, you may have to uh, you may have an upper bound of a quarter second or half a second or something like that for your clock synchronization, and so you can be linearizable by um, by, by performing that sleep, but sleeping for a quarter of a second is a much less attractive proposition than sleeping for seven milliseconds, and so. If you really wanted to run in uh, in linearizable mode, um, that is uh, that that is an option, um, but it's not uh, that that's something that's uh, that's a lot less appealing. Uh, but uh, anyway, so so uh, to to explain the uh, the difference between uh, serializable and linearizable, um, the the difference is fairly subtle. But the best way to explain it is that. In a serializable transaction like Cockroach provides, everything is very strongly consistent between two transactions 
as long as the two transactions um, touch at least one key in common. If the, uh, if the two transactions touch at least one key, then that key kind of acts as the, uh, acts as the coordination point to ensure that uh, one transaction definitively comes either before or after the other. If you have two transactions that don't touch any key in common, um, then those two transactions can be in a kind of ambiguous state where they commit at uh, almost exactly the same time, and it's hard to tell which one comes uh, comes before or after. And so th this is where linearizability comes in. In linearizability, it is definitely possible to, to assign an ordering for these two transactions, even though they didn't... Uh, didn't touch the same keys in a in cockroach it's possible for um it's possible for uh for three transactions each of which you know overlaps with each other but does but doesn't uh, they don't all conflict with the with the each transaction conflict or in interferes with uh kind of the neighboring transaction on one key but not uh not with another uh transaction sorry i'm not explaining this uh very well, but you can get into um, you, you you can get into cases where um, uh, two transactions are actually kind of ambiguously ordered, where um, you know transaction uh, tra transaction A comes before transaction B, which comes before transaction C. Um, but if uh, if A if you consider A and C in isolation, then there's uh, then there's some ambiguity between them. Yeah, so, so it, the, the difference has to do with the uh, the, the ability to define uh, an ordering between um, between transactions that uh, that don't touch uh, don't touch overlapping keys. Okay, and so you know, for a listener who doesn't know much about distributed databases, it might have seemed like we've gone from this strange conversation about distributed databases to this conversation about atomic clocks and time, and they just have no idea why we went from one thing to another. And I think the key point to make here is that versioning is really important to these types of databases. And data in, in Spanner, which is, you know, the, like you said, is the, one of the inspirations for CockroachDB, data in Spanner is temporal and versioned. Give an overview of how versioning works, uh, how different versions are stored, and why clocks are so necessary to this. Right. So um, earlier when I was talking about the, uh, the monolithic uh, key value sorted map, um, I glossed over one, uh, one detail there, which is that the key for all of these, uh, for all of these uh, key value pairs, there's actually... Um, it's actually not a key value pair. It's a key timestamp value triple. And so each, uh, each value has a timestamp associated with it. And so that, uh, that timestamp is assigned when the, uh, when the transaction is written. And so that's, uh, th that's why it's so important to have the, um, to have, uh, consistent, uh, clocks across all of your, uh, all of your nodes to make sure that uh, when a new value is written, it has a timestamp that is greater than any other uh, value that was previously written for the same key. So how many versions of a value are stored at once? Do you just, do you just overwrite the previous version or do you keep track of the past? Uh, yeah, we keep track of the past. So um, when a, 
and this is this is good for read only transactions because read only transactions will have a timestamp assigned when they start and then they can always read the value that was current at that time um, even as other transactions are going on on top of them so this is uh, th this is part of our um, our concurrency model so that read only transactions can uh, can continue to execute while the uh, while the data is uh, is changing uh, sort of in the future that they operate at a consistent point in time. And so we keep, uh, we keep data around until a, uh, until a garbage collector comes along and deletes the old versions. Um, currently that defaults to, uh, to keeping the old versions for a day. Um, this is uh, something that uh, can be configured and uh, you may want to um, either uh, re reduce that value to garbage collect things more aggressively if, um, if there's a lot of churn and, uh, and so you're wasting a lot of space on this historical data. Or you could increase the value if you want to keep the old data around so you can query and say, oh, what was the value of this, uh, of this table as it existed yesterday? Got it. Um, so, you know, you touched on some read some you know stuff that happens during a read stuff that happens during a write but i'd like to talk uh in a little more detail about how a read versus a write works in spanner or cockroachdb um just to give listeners a better idea of just how the transactionality works so maybe you could describe a read from top to bottom and a write from top to bottom um sure yeah i'm going to uh start with writes because that's um Actually, slightly uh, slightly simpler um, to explain, um, and uh, and the read the read part won't make sense until you see how it interacts with the uh, with the data that's being written because that's where the data that you're going to read comes from. But so in a uh, in a write, uh, like I said, uh, everything goes through raft, and so um, the the write always originates on the leader of the range, and then raft um, it submits the proposal to raft. Raft uh, conducts its little election among the uh, among the replicas, and uh, and then uh, comes out with uh, an ordered list of uh, of operations to apply, and so then all three replicas will apply this uh, this operation um, in the same order, and so that, that that's what guarantees that the uh, that that uh, the data stays in sync, and so um, so all, all writes. Uh, Writes are fairly straightforward, um, given the, uh, the the distributed consensus prim primitives that we're, we're building off of. Reads uh, for, for reads, it would be possible to do the same thing. You could just um, you could just send a read into Raft and uh, and then get uh, get the uh, the log entry back out of Raft, um, and that would give it an order in between. So this would tell you which uh, which version of the uh, of the data you should read because you know what uh, what order uh, the consensus log uh, came out in. But this is this is pretty expensive and involves uh, it involves uh, talking to all three replica or to, to a majority of the replicas. Um, these replicas have to write to disk, and that's uh, that's just way too expensive for um, for a read only query. Um, especially when you consider that in uh, real-world systems, reads tend to be far more common than than writes, and so we need a more uh, a more optimized path for reads. And so the way we do that is by um, granting a lease to the leader of the range to say that that uh, that leader can uh, can serve reads on its own without talking to the other replicas for as long as that lease is valid. Um, the lease is actually managed through uh, through Raft itself, so that uh, so that we know that uh, nothing uh, nothing can go 
not, nothing can happen um, before or after the uh, the, the lease. Or nothing can happen before the lease was granted or after it expires, and all of the nodes agree on that through the order of the raft log. And so the the the, the leader has has a lease which allows it to um, to serve these reads directly, and it also um, is responsible for doing various kinds of bookkeeping to make sure that it won't uh, it, it won't serve a uh, it won't serve a read that conflicts with a write that it's already proposed, and it won't propose a write that conflicts with a read that it uh, that it's already served. So I'm sorry, maybe I, I missed that. Did you say that the when you read, you provide a timestamp, or does it just read based on the timestamp of when the transaction um, comes in? Or? Uh, yeah. So at uh, at the level of the range, um, by the time it comes down to the range, the read already has a timestamp assigned to it. Uh, Got or, it. Sorry, if if the read is a part of a of a transaction, you can also um, do a read outside of a transaction that. Uh, that doesn't have a timestamp associated with it, and then it just gets the latest value when it uh, when it comes through to the uh, to, to the the leader. But if it's if so the if the read is a part of a transaction, then it will have a timestamp assigned by the time it comes down to the uh, to the range leader. And the timestamp uh, is kind of a, a guard on the, I guess, the level of time based consistency of of that read. Um. Yeah, so the timestamp is uh I mean the timestamp is just saying, you know, get me the get me the value that was current at this time. And so yes. the problem that, so the, the reason this is kind of complicated is because writes take some time to come through. And so 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 say you get a write coming in at uh, at time T1. So the the write gets proposed, it's kind of stuck in the uh, in the process of going through raft. And then you get a read that comes in at time uh, at time t two, so that read can't uh, can't proceed immediately because it knows because that leader knows that it just proposed a write at time t one, and so it can't uh, it can't serve the read until after that uh, that write at t one has uh, has either completed uh, has either run through the process and been completed or uh, failed and been aborted. Yeah. Uh, so this is a pretty edge casey, but what happens if uh, I try to read a value at a certain time and it, I find out that that time has been garbage collected away? Um, th- then that's uh, that, that's that would just be be an error, and so each range okay. ma- each range knows you know what what what's the uh, most recent data that's been uh, that's been garbage collected, and it won't let you. Um, what won't let you read any further back than that? Okay. So prior to Spanner, there was a Google technology developed called Bigtable. And the authors of Spanner commented that engineers who used Bigtable sometimes complained that it was difficult to use. What were the usability problems of Bigtable and how did Spanner improve upon them? So the uh, the fundamental uh, problem with Bigtable um, was that it was uh, it, it was uh, not uh, it was not transactional uh, in, and it was uh, it was eventually consistent. 
So essentially, the problems of Bigtable are the same as the problems of most uh, NoSQL databases today, um, which means that your data, you, you have to be very, uh, very careful in the way you, uh, you handle your data because y you may be seeing an inconsistent view of your data at, uh, at any given time. Um, you may be seeing, um, you, you may see a, an index pointer before the record it's, it's supposed to point to or vice versa. And you may see, um, you know, two different indexes that are mutually inconsistent with each other. For example, um, but Bigtable didn't even have built-in support for indexing. You had to do all of that by hand. Um, and so you could build uh, you could build systems on uh, on Bigtable as long as you could, uh, you know, tolerate a certain amount of uh, of inconsistency. And you know, a lot of applications can um, if you're you know, it doesn't. It doesn't really matter if, um, you know, if you're, you know, if a like takes uh, takes a few seconds to sh uh, to show up, or it, uh, you know, if your if your like count is uh, is off on a on a photo when you uh, when you view it. But um, it, you know, for other for other things, you know, like if you have a, a comment thread where comments are showing up out of order, you know that. Uh, that that can make things very uh, very hard to follow, and so depending on your application's tolerance for inconsistent data, it was uh, it, it was either uh, it, you know it was varying degrees of of difficulty to to try and and fit that into the uh, the, the more limited capabilities of of Bigtable. We started out this conversation talking about the high level design principles of CockroachDB and. We've touched on some of those. We've delved down into the depths of the engineering aspects. What are the aspects, uh, the high-level design principles of CockroachDB that we haven't really touched on? Survivability, perhaps? Uh, yes, yeah, sur survivability um, is, uh, is closely linked to, uh, to consistency, in, uh, in my view. Um, yeah, so, uh, but yeah, survivability is, uh, is certainly an important principle. I mean, it's, it's so important that it's where the, uh, it's where the name of the database comes from. Um, it's a database that is, uh, that, that is as, as difficult to kill as a, as a cockroach. Um, and so what this means is that because your data is, uh, is fully and consistently replicated across, uh, across at least three, uh, three copies of everything, then you know that, you know, you can lose a machine and, Everything, uh, everything just transparently uh, shifts the work to another um, another replica that's still up. Um, you know, when a when a replica group loses a member, then the the two surviving members of that group will uh, will run an election amongst themselves. Um, they'll be able to pick up right where the uh, right where the failed node left off because everything is is consistently replicated, and then. Um, and then the repair process will kick in and say, "Okay, this this group only has two live replicas. I need to find a third one." And then it go it uses the same mechanism as rebalancing to uh, to, to reassign that uh, that data to a new uh, a new host. Okay, perfect. And at, so at a product level, CockroachDB claims to offer the strongest survivability story in the industry. Is there an edge that CockroachDB has against? Similar systems from I don't know Amazon or Google or Microsoft. Um, so so when you're when you're comparing it to um, to uh, the services that are provided by the uh, by the cloud providers like uh, like Amazon's uh, DynamoDB or uh, or RDS uh, or uh, Google's uh, counterparts with their with their cloud data store and their uh, cloud managed uh, SQL offerings. Um, 
the uh, um, you know, but it, it depends. It, the the, uh, the level of uh, of survivability that you get with these products um, varies from product to product. For example, I think uh, DynamoDB um, until until recently, at least, couldn't do uh, cross region replication. You had uh, cross availability zone replication, but it was still um, still tied within a single uh, single region. Um, with uh, CockroachDB, you can um, you, you can conf- configure your replicas um, however however you like. You can uh, spread them out uh, spread them out around the globe. Um, you know, we, we don't currently perform very well in that case. If your uh, if your uh, replicas are too far apart, um, just because we're not uh, we're, we're not as efficient as we could be in terms of minimizing uh, unnecessary round trips between the replicas, but it will work and stay consistent um, no matter what. Um, and uh, you, you know, one uh, one big advantage that we have in comparison to any offerings from the uh, the big cloud providers themselves is that uh, is that we're uh, we're sort of neutral in in terms of uh, hosting situations, and so you can take a uh, you, you can start out with CockroachDB on EC2 and then migrate from there to uh, to CockroachDB on uh, on Google Cloud. You can actually run this concurrently. You can replicate uh, from one cloud into another cloud, or have a you know a third replica in your own uh, your own physical data center. And so you have uh, you have flexibility with uh, CockroachDB that uh, that you don't always get with a uh, with, with a cloud provider's managed solution. So Google is working to build its own cloud platform with externalized versions of internal services, like things that they've written papers on, like TensorFlow and Bigtable. How does CockroachDB differentiate from what Google might be able to do if they built an external implementation of Spanner? Um, so uh, I think uh, that, you know the, the the biggest uh, the biggest thing is uh, is just what I was uh, you know what I was just saying about uh, avoiding uh, avoiding lock in uh, with CockroachDB. You're not uh, you're not tied to uh, to Google's hosting. You can take uh, Take your data and uh, and replicate it out of uh, out of Google's cloud and into uh, into another, and so that uh, that that gives you a uh, you know gives you a lot of uh, a lot of flexibility. Um, it gives you you know leverage for finding uh, finding the best prices. Um, the, the other the other uh, big advantage that we have is that because we're open source, uh, um, we can uh, CockroachDB can run everywhere from your laptop on up to um, on up to a, a huge uh, cloud deployment, and so you're running exactly the same database um, in your uh, in your development environment as you are in your production deployment, and so that's something that uh, that, that you're unlikely to get uh, to get from Google. They w- they would have to build a separate you know local development version um, as they've done with their App Engine data store, uh, but then you're developing against something that's not quite the same as uh, as what you would see in uh, in production. Right. So their incentive is always going to be to make some sort of black box PaaS thing that works on top of the Google Compute Cloud, but does not run on your own laptop where you're not paying for uh, Google infrastructure prices. Right. Okay. Very interesting. Okay. Well, you know, I'd love to begin to wrap up. Um, what's what are you working on now at Cockroach, and what's in the future? So, um, a- as we're recording this, we actually just released our uh, our first beta version last week. 
Um, so we hit uh, we hit beta one, which uh, which is still um, you know it's still a fairly uh, fairly early uh, stage of development for a database. Um, you know, it's uh, pe people are uh, rightly very uh, very cautious and conservative in uh, in deploying new database technologies. So um, you know, it's uh, if you're uh, yeah, you know, so a a first beta of a database is definitely for adventurous early adopters. But you know, this is this does mean that we've reached a point where you know it's it's more or less usable. You know, we're not uh, we're not going to make any more backwards incompatible changes that will uh, that'll break your uh, break your application if you start uh, start developing against it. And so um, this is uh, we've kind of moved from the uh, from the initial um, development of the core functionality and features. Into um, a stabilization and performance um, phase of development, and so right now our efforts are all on um, ensuring that the system works and uh, and performs well under uh, under load, and you know degrades gracefully when overloaded. It doesn't just run out of memory and die, and things like that. So our our focus right now is. Uh, is on uh, on stability and reliability and getting from uh, from beta to the uh, the kind of 1.0 release that you can uh, that you'll be able to trust your uh, your live data with. Well, that sounds like a great place to close off. Ben, thanks for coming out of Software Engineering Daily. CockroachDB is a really cool project, and uh, you have done a great job of explaining the distributed systems concepts, the distributed database concepts that can sometimes be difficult to discuss over pure audio. So thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been fun. 